0: All right. Let's all talk at the same time. Let's see what the levels look like. Just say all something. All right, well, so we're just going to so be there's jabbering there's over an, each other want, and then then see what, what happens. Louder. Okay, yeah, that's good. <laughs> all
1: right. <laughs> all right. You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 11.
2: Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcasting app. And visit us at CodingBlocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion articles, and other stuff.
0: And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at CodingBlocks.net. And follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CodingBlocks. And with that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. And uh, so the first thing we're going to start off with today is a little bit of news uh first raj tweet uh on twitter at raj tweet awesome he, name yes he hit us up this morning and was like hey we're looking forward to the uh the design pattern so uh here we are we're recording this same night so uh, appreciate you calling us out for that and
1: in other news uh there was a, a release from microsoft for the uh, .NET framework 4.5.2 i know we were all anxious anxiously awaiting that release <laughs> No.
0: Yeah, not so much. No. Okay. It's yeah. okay. fine,
2: fine. Uh, ASPV next. That Anyone? sounds a little bit cooler. Yeah. So I'm excited. I don't remember what it it's involved in anymore. It was deploying in the cloud or something, right? I don't even remember. Oh, and I accidentally deleted the link. So <laughs> next.
1: <laughs> awesome. So in in cooler news, then, uh, Kaspersky Labs. A well-known name in the security realm, they uh, they put out a link, uh, a site called Kaspersky-Cyberstat.com, and uh, if you have a chance to check it out, it's it's really awesome. It has like real-time statistics of uh, things that are happening on the internet. So, number of cyber attacks, uh, total internet users, number of Android phones that have been you know uh, that that are out there. Um,
2: Babies being born.
1: Yep, yep. Babies being born. Blog post today. Uh, detected adware. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was pretty neat. A uh, little stat there.
0: Yeah, and the uh, the what was it? The malware stuff that looked like they just basically took whatever number was on there and just kept multiplying it by a million every <laughs> second. So, <laughs> they might be a little biased. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. It could be just a random number generator, like you
0: know. It, it felt like it. It was going up so fast. Uh, let's
1: see what else we got. There's oh, there's a. Um, Julie Lerman on Twitter posted uh, that uh, Entity Framework 7 was just sitting out there in the wild uh, just waiting to be found um, and uh, she, she posted a link to that on uh, on Twitter it was uh, juliel.me slash github ef7 and uh, it, it was a link to the github repo that contained it Yeah,
0: pretty cool stuff
1: uh in other in non uh technical news uh one of my favorite authors uh mark res uh, that almost came out completely wrong <laughs> <laughs> how do you say rossnovichch yes thank you there it is uh he he released his new book uh last week rogue code so i don't know if you guys have read any of his uh the previous ones in his uh jeff Aiken series um, what was it? Trojan Horse and Zero Day, I believe were the other two. Um
2: yeah, so and you turned uh, you turned me on to uh Demon or Damon. Oh man
1: by yeah. Daniel Suarez and that, oh, that yes, was really good. So.
0: Absolutely my favorite series. Yeah, gotta check out Daniel Suarez. Excellent Which stuff.
1: Which he had it he had in all fairness, he had a new book that came out um a couple months ago now. Um shoot, I can't even remember the Did name you read of it, that though. one? Uh I, I've honestly i've been bogged down with like technical books at the moment so i have it i bought it and and i had started to read it and then i uh, got pulled aside with other books so is that influx
2: yes yes it is thank you all right and that's kind of like um the deal with that is basically like um kind of a techno science fiction when i say techno i mean like coding based so this, this is like sci-fi for coders well that's why i really like these two authors is that uh, if you have never
1: checked them out like both of them write things that are their storylines are ver- have a lot of technology in them they're very technical but they're also very plausible technology yes. and you know, f- they both kind of approach it from a different angle like m- m- um mark uh, thank you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he takes the approach of things that are like maybe um, more current times, whereas Suarez takes the approach of things that are like they're in development stages right now, and you might not be aware that the military is already using them. But the, you know they are things that are out there, but they're not as commonplace as what he might make them out in his storylines. But still, the storylines are fantastic.
2: Cool. So, if these are more realistic and kind of techno-based or, or um, coding-based, and does the protagonist like Google every five minutes? Um, I suppose you could. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if it's going to be realistic, then there's got to be at least a hundred searches per day, <laughs> at least.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'll just wait for it to happen. Well, yeah, I'm not going to ruin anything about either of the books, but right. Um, oh, I'm just All saying, right. like you know, There there's there's some awesomeness there. there. If you haven't already read. If if you're not familiar with either author, then
0: you should check them and out. And we'll have them in the show notes for you. Yep. And speaking of awesomeness,
2: I actually just found this today, and my feelings are a little hurt. Uh, a friend of mine turns out, uh, I knew he went to the PowerShell um, Summit recently, and it turns out uh, that he spoke there, and there's a video of his presentation online. So uh, without him knowing it, uh, I am <laughs> mentioning it on the show here. And the, the name of that talk is PowerShell Module Design Rules. And when to bend them. So uh, definitely check that out. We'll have that link in the show notes. And in that same vein, uh, someone else I know um, recently put a package up on uh, GitHub that actually allows you to easily integrate PowerShell tasks into MS Build. So what that lets you do is maybe you have PowerShell run like code generation or something like that. Now you can schedule that as like a real build task. So you can you know hit F5 or Shift F5 in, in Visual Studio, and it's going to run your task. Hmm. Pretty cool. Very nice. And um, one thing that i am actually been looking at using that for, for Color Mine is actually signing my assemblies. So you can set up signing in Visual Studio, and it'll prop it right there in the proj file. And it'll link to your key, and it'll sign whenever you build, like, release mode. But the problem with that... Who needs signing? Well... <laughs> so there's an article on that which we'll be getting to uh coming up next but um the deal with that is if i leave it checked into the project file that means that if i put that code up on github i either need to have that secret key embedded in my source code bad idea or i need to not have that stuff in my project file so uh, what i do there is basically just run a little powershell task and i can check that in and i can have the uh PowerShell basically if that thing out there. So if the, the key's not there, then don't even try to sign it. And the reason that signing is important is actually detailed in the blog post by yours truly on the website. We'll have a link to that. I've basically been looking at strongly naming assemblies in NuGet and the problems that you run to mainly around key storage and open source projects. So it's kind of a unique problem to open source projects um, in NuGet that are strongly signed, and you should be strongly signing. So check that out. And finally, I wanted to mention a new video game that came out recently called Watchdogs. And you've probably seen a lot of press around this, and it's um, kind of firmly rooted in like kind of InfoSec, post Prism world hacking. It's an like,
1: iOS game? New iOS game? That's
2: yeah. not, not iOS. So game. Much. Wait, I'm what? sure there's a companion app with it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but no, nothing like that. But uh, it's uh, kind of had some mixed reviews. Yeah, it's it's a little disappointing. I mean, I was looking forward to this one and all the reviews I've seen have basically just slammed the storyline. So, which is unfortunate cuz the the advertisement's really made it look like it was kind
2: of ta- going to tackle this kind of gray area, you know, um what's ethical, what's not. Um there's a lot of issues, you know, this is a hot topic right now, but it seems like the actual game itself just kind of
0: glossed over it. And isn't this game way late because they were trying to polish it up and and make sure it was going to be like the best game ever? Yeah. Isn't that
1: the story behind every game, though?
0: <laughs> That's true. Not the Call of Duties. Those things come out every November. <laughs> right on schedule. <laughs> That's right. Now, granted, they're using the same game with a few new maps, but whatever. So, It's worth it. Yeah, so I don't know. I might pick up this game anyways. Hey, I, you know, there's not much out on the next-gen systems right now.
2: Yeah, when that Steam holiday sale comes around, I can get it for $9. bucks, and i will <laughs> add it to my collection of games I've never even bothered to install. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So that's enough news. Um, so today we're going to be talking about um, design patterns, specifically the creational design patterns. So there's this kind of famous book. You'll see it referred to around the internet as the Gang of Four book or the GOF book, which uh, is really unfortunate because you can't search for that in Amazon. The, the name of the book is actually called Design Patterns. It just happens to be written by four people. And the book, I thought this was really interesting. The book was published in 1994, right? And it is still in its first edition. It's never been updated. Standalone, 1994. Surely they must have made a typo in there somewhere. Well, no, man, comma. no, man. Every this
1: is Come on. Every one of them had perfect grammatical syntax.
2: Like, nothing was wrong. No, man. This book That's is That's crazy. It's done.
0: And, and on Amazon, this particular book has 353 reviews and four and a half stars. That's impressive.
2: And what's weird is, like, you know, there have been talks of new patterns, and uh, I'm surprised that they haven't added any patterns either.
0: Yeah, I mean, they pretty much nailed it all back when they wrote this thing.
1: It, it almost feels like they were way ahead of their time when they wrote it. And it's just taken us the
0: last you know twenty years to catch up to be like, what
1: were they talking about? Oh, that's what they meant, right? right. right.
0: So we are bringing you fresh information on this podcast on some twenty-year-old information,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, it's kind of funny about this. hey, but like, we're doing it in a new way because it's podcasting, right? That's so, right. right. Oh wait, podcasting isn't really that. Uh, yeah, so much. I think
2: there's probably been a few other podcasts on design patterns, but what I think is kind of funny about design patterns is like it's kind of a certain milestone or, or stepping stone on a developer's path, like. There's a, like a certain point of maturity where you kind of find out about design patterns. You go out and you learn, you know, you read the Wikipedia article. And next thing you know, these factories start showing up in your code. And it's kind of like almost like a sign of like a good junior program when you see something and you're like, oh, I see you've got uh, 20 new factories checked in there in your latest pull request. Did somebody just get the Gang of Four book? <laughs> and so these these um, creational patterns in particular, they're the first part of the book, so they're the kind of the, the classes that get joked around um the most because those are the kind of things that when people first start getting into design patterns they start putting in all the code and then they end up kind of rebelling against it a little bit but it's kind of funny which is what we're going to focus on
1: tonight with creational patterns
2: right so why should you even bother studying design patterns
1: um, because and you're in school and
2: you had to do it. <laughs> you wanted to you make got, a good you, grade. They,
0: they taught you that in school? Hold on a second. None of us learned a design pattern in school. There's uh, no way. Man, yeah, man. This book was in 94.
2: Uh, my, my education consists of nothing before 1970. Uh, really Well,
0: interesting
2: <laughs> <laughs> no man i can let me tell you i can tell you the big o notation for every single sorting method but i okay. n- not a single design parent.
0: no but i mean this seriously like when we talk about schooling
2: you'll have this, to forgive Alan yeah. he's going through puberty yeah
0: <laughs> pu- puberty's catching back up uh, i've kind of started losing my voice so uh, no, uh actually we should
1: have mentioned that though like he did do a presentation which is why he's uh
0: yeah i did a presentation last night apparently my voice was not made for speaking that long uh <laughs> Which is great that you're
1: host of a show. Yeah, I'm host yeah. of a
0: show. Apparently, I can't, used to it, right? I can't take much of this. So that's why I have co-hosts. <laughs> mm. So, uh, no, I mean, but that's one of the great things about what we're going to talk about today is these are things that most people don't find out about until they get into the real world of programming. Right? I mean, you don't learn about this stuff in school. And generally, you don't even understand the concepts at that point anyway. So um, I think these are the steps to becoming a better programmer. So... Mm. No doubt.
2: And so, um, you know, we kind of joke around a lot a little bit, but um, there, there are a few reasons for um, studying design patterns. And I think that the main reason for me is it, when I see the word factory in, in a code base, um, after kind of, you know, snickering to myself a little bit, uh, I know exactly what that class does or what it means. You know, it's got um, this kind of context behind it that I'm familiar with. So I know what to expect when I open that file. Same thing if I see a builder or, you know, a visitor or an adapter or something like that. These things have meaning. So it allows me to kind of shortcut reading those files and, and understanding what's going on at a higher level. Yeah, I'm going to stick with you wanting to make a good grade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And um, just also want to mention there's, a, you know, we kind of hinted at a little bit of controversy uh, as a late around design patterns. And um, that's kind of like a, it's almost like a little bit of a rebellion towards static languages. And so you'll see people kind of, um, mentioning design patterns in kind of a derogatory way, and um, you can kind of research that on your own. Um, but a, a lot of times, the arguments kind of focus around um, these design patterns focusing on deficiencies in static languages, basically not being flexible enough and not having the kind of like language and runtime support that you would have in something like Ruby or JavaScript.
0: Which I won't get you guys started on JavaScript.
1: No, go for it. <laughs>
0: only because i only because i can't fight with you about it right now Um, no this
1: would be awesome let's do it (laughs) let's let's hash this out right now
0: um but so the design patterns themselves are kind of divided into three parts you have your creational patterns which are your factories builders prototypes and singletons you have your structural patterns which are your adapter bridge flyweight facade proxy and there are several others and then there's the uh, behavioral patterns Observer strategy, chain of responsibility, and many others and in future episodes, we'll be talking about a lot of these, but today we are talking about the creational patterns.
1: There is a quote from the Gang of Four book here that uh they help make a system independent of how its objects are created, composed,
2: and represented so uh English par
0: <laughs> That's fantastic Spanish there. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. for> <laughs> now, my dad was a French teacher, but I did not inherit the language gene. <laughs> you certainly did not. No, you did. Uh, 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 so,
1: uh, <laughs> so in English, they help make it. No, I won't read it again. Uh, it's just another way of of trying to. Uh, uh, break nah, how to say this why'd you have to ask me
2: in english right. Sorry. <laughs> so wh- why should i care about creation patterns and like, what does it get me
1: uh to well okay so <laughs> how about it will promote composition over inheritance wow why do i care about that because it's smaller more focused classes
2: hey that's uh starting to sound a little bit
0: solid there oh god Yes. No,
1: because then if we did that, we're going to end up with classes that do nothing again.
0: Oh. Well, that's what it's all about. (laughs) Smack dizzle.
2: So the idea with creational patterns is that they they help uh, encapsulate away the logic of creating classes away into uh, separate classes so that your classes can be created, composed, and represented outside of the the logic that's actually uh, using these things. And um, that to me sounds a lot like the D and saw the dependency uh, um, injection. So you're actually relying on these objects, but you don't know where they come from, whether they need certain configuration settings or whether they're talking to a database in the background or just kind of mocking it out. Um, it, it doesn't really matter to the code that's using these classes because they're not newing up the objects. And there's two kind of major recurring themes oh, and no. patterns. But wouldn't singleton kind of break what you just said? Uh, That's why everyone hates them.
0: (laughs) I set myself up. Damn it. (laughs) Boom. All right. So uh, I guess the main patterns we're going to be talking about today are the factory methods, factories, builders, prototypes, and singletons. Thank you, Dr. Love. Yes.
2: Yeah. One thing we should mention about these patterns, too, Mm. before we kind of dive in is that you're already doing this stuff. It's just even if you've never heard of the factory method, you've made a factory method before. If you've never heard of factory, you've made a factory before. These are common patterns that we run into. And the the kind of the point of studying them is that you get to kind of look at the pattern separate from the business logic and kind of study that independent of any particular domain. And so it's just a good way of kind of breaking these projects up and kind of avoiding some pitfalls that you can have if you implement it in a slightly different way.
0: Yep and so the first one we're going to talk about or I'm going to attempt to talk about are factories and factory methods so first let's talk about um, basically just a a simple factory so this is not a pattern as much as it is just a way to create objects without newing them up in your code so when you call a particular factory what you'll do is you may pass in a parameter so uh, one of the examples I found and it might have been on Wikipedia. No, actually, this was from a site video on factories, was you call a simple factory, and you pass in the type of car you want. And in that factory, essentially all it has is a switch statement saying, hey, if you pass me in BMW, then new up an instance of a BMW car. If you passed in a Mini Cooper, then new up an instance of the Mini Cooper and return that. So in your calling code, you're not saying new BMW, new Mini. You're going to pass in, we'll say a string potentially, and then there's going to be a switch case, uh, uh, a case switch statement in there that's just going to return you the type of object representing that.
1: But it doesn't have to be based off of
0: uh, input
1: though. It could Correct. also be based off of configuration values. Config files. Right. For settings, example, database
0: connection strings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But usually not as much in the simple factory. That's usually more in the factory patterns themselves. And we'll get into that in just a second. Um, so. Moving on to the next one is the factory method, uh, which is – this one was kind of interesting. Basically, what you have is it's the same type concept. You call a factory, but inside that factory, they are subclassing uh, an abstract class. And when you pass in something, basically um, on Wikipedia, the thing that we got that was – it, it kind of spelled it out properly is you have two you have two game uh maze games is what they call one's a maze game and one's a magic maze game. And basically what you have is you have this this make room method in them. Depending on which one you uh when you call this factory, depending on which one you tell it you want, the the method make room is going to be overridden. From the subclass and then that's what's going to return the new object, so
1: all oh, right I remember th- this this conversation okay so this was um, the one it's it's kind of it's like if we were to take the template pattern but outside of a method and then talk about it in regards to classes yes though it, so you basically, have, you basically have you basically had the the base class that has a bunch of methods that you can then um, choose to override yes. if you want your subclass to do something different, and then uh, w- when the factory method is called to, in your example, make room. Yep, uh, that would be an overridden room, correct? Or a overridden method um, that returns a that would type return back a different
2: yes object. Yep. So you know you could have like a magic maze, implement those methods. You could have a corn maze. Uh, implement those methods, ice maze, lava maze, you know, whatever type of mazes.
0: And whenever they make a room, they
2: construct some sort of room that's applicable to their use case.
0: And one of the key things to note here is that I, I don't think we've mentioned yet is when you call one of these factories to return something, they are returning concrete type. So uh, the magic maze, or like he said, the corn maze, but really what you're getting back is an interface. You are, you basically have a type of the interface so that you know the methods available but you don't actually know the type of the concrete class coming back, and that's the key. In any factory situation, you really don't want to know the exact type, typically speaking, of what's coming back because that allows you to loosely couple your code from what you're getting back. You just know that whatever interface it implements, it has a thing called make room, and you can call this, and then it'll work. So it, it allows you to decouple any kind of real knowledge from what it is as opposed to what it can just do when you call the methods.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and just to be clear, like, I, I was only suggesting like, it, it reminded me of a template pattern from a different perspective, but it's, it's definitely not.
2: Yeah, I think the, kind of the key there with the, the factory methods and how it's kind of different from a simple factory is really when you're talking about factory methods, uh, you're pretty much always talking about more than one factory, so you've got a factory for the maze game. You've got a, a factory for the um, corny maze game. A one for the ice maze. These are all separate classes that create a different flavor of maze.
0: But yeah, you only have one factory, but multiple classes. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you have the actual factory pattern. I believe is what this one is. It, it's so crazy because it's all over the board depending on where you look. Um, But with this one, essentially what you have, this generally uh, uses reflection quite a bit because it'll be based off either a config or something else. But your factory, you are going to instantiate a factory, uh, a type of factory. So you're going to have an interface for factory. So let's say iAuto factory. And then you're going to have a BMW factory that extends that. You're going to have uh, a Dodge factory that extends that. And depending on a config value or a type that you pass in, it's going to use reflection to say, okay, now I'm going to new up this type of factory. And then we know that that factory has a create automobile. And then that create automobile is going to return you whatever type it is. If, If it happened to new up the BMW factory, then you're going to get back a BMW 335i. If it newed up the Dodge one, you're going to get back a Dodge Ram because why would you buy anything else? So um that is that is really the threw me the, off guard there. The, uh, <clears throat> does Dodge make anything else? Uh Viper. Oh yeah, good point. Um but so that's kind of what you get there is when you get into the actual factory pattern itself You are basically implementing an interface with multiple different types of factories, and that's how it happens. And, again, it uses reflection, generally speaking, based off a config value. So, like, in your config, you might have BMW as the factory type that you want it to instantiate. So it's going to use reflection and say, okay, create BMW factory. Or if you have a value that you're passing at the time. But, again, the whole key is you are not newing up a BMW. You're not newing up a Dodge the factory is doing it for you, and you just know you're getting back a type of I auto.
2: Yeah, and we should mention, uh, too, that uh, if you are confused right now, then um, it just means you're understanding, because this is confusing. <laughs> if you try to Google this stuff, you're going to see a lot of articles that um, talk about the factory pattern, but give you an example of a simple factory. And you're going to see simple factories that say they're simple factories that really look more like an abstract fat- factory. And, uh, it's just kind of confusing, but the important thing to really get out of this is that, uh, you're already probably doing stuff like this and it's really the theory behind it and not so much the names that are important.
0: Yeah. Generally speaking, anytime where you see that you're calling something and you're getting back an object, but you don't know what type it is, then you're probably using a factory pattern of some sort. Yep. Um, and then there's the, the deep end. Yeah. The deep end here, which is abstract factory pattern. And you thought you were confused before, and I don't even know if I can explain this well with just words without having something to draw on. Well, a board. this is
1: what we just talked about, though the factory, where you have the no, 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 so, the factory, and you don't know. You, okay, well, hold on. Okay, I know where you're going. Go, go. Ahead. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: so the one that I just did before was you basically have multiple factories that implement um, a particular I factory type. When you have abstract factories, basically now what you have are factories of factories, which are uh, even more loosely coupled, but they are all somewhat related. And so, essentially, you're going to have your your initial factory, and instead of having uh, just a BMW and whatever else, you might have... Um, oh, God, I don't even know if I can explain this well. So you've got... You've got your, uh, your BMW factory, and that might actually also have multiple factories that create cars. One's going to be a sedan, one's going to be an SUV, and one's going to be a, a truck, right? So that you're, going to have, you're going to have those uh, factories of factories that way. And so if you somehow instantiate the BMW one and then you say, all right, that's going to create an SUV, then it's going to return you back an X5. If you did it through the Dodge, you're going to get a Durango. So your top level factory then knows to instantiate the bottom level factories based off another config file, or or value that's passed in, and then those factories are going to return you back an I auto of the type that you did. So again, these are all these are all related items, but now you have factories of factories. So <clears throat> I, did that did that come across okay? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think to, I think to really <clears throat> understand this though. There's
1: a really fun read on uh, JoelOnSoftware.com, <laughs> and uh, y- you can search for it if you need to. We'll have a, a link to it in our show notes. But this will really help you to understand how factories work, and it's a um, um, a forum entry by Benji Smith, and it's uh, his general purpose tool building factory factory factory, <laughs> and it'll really help explain everything you need to know about factory path- or factory pattern.
2: Yep, and that's all. also including um, comments from its detractors. <laughs> so the problem, uh, as you might uh, have guessed with factories, is that it is a little bit confusing um, to talk about. And if you're going to read about these things, then uh, I hope you like UML because you're going to see a lot of it. Yeah,
1: no- nobody really buys hammers anymore.
2: And it, it gets to a point where you can be so abstracted in your code that it, your code is just kind of like what we talked about with solid. You're so abstracted that nothing actually does anything real anymore.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a little frustrating at times. And it actually, I mean, uh, Microsoft, I mean, if you ever look through any of their uh, libraries of code, they use factories everywhere, right? Like almost everything they do is, is a factory of some sort of factory of another factory. So it's very common. So this is, if you can learn to uh, recognize factories, you'll be a lot better off in your coding days.
2: Yeah, it's just a little frustrating when you come in and you're like, I just need to add an if statement. And you're like, you're well, wading through these factories of factories, returning so, factories.
1: So here, here's here's the interview question. When would you know that you need to use a factory?
2: Polymorphism. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, expecting you to failed. go somewhere with He's that. you fired. No. Oh. Oh.
0: <laughs> Instead, it was just like a one word answer <laughs> when would you any anytime that you know that you 've already got certain types that are there and you want to add another type it's it 's great for the open close principle right like you just implement so another auto right so now Scion is a new company you can create you can create it implement the same interface, and now uh you 're pretty much ready to roll right like this thing can return it back to you uh without having to go in and touch any of the underlying code you 're just adding additional classes. And then maybe a config. Yeah, one real
2: world example I like uh, of um, factories in use is the. Um, if you ever use any of the AWS SDKs, then they've got this this class here, the AWS uh, Client Factory, the static class, and uh, you say create S3 Client, create um, Dynamo Client, and it'll go and. Um, It'll read the settings out of your config file or the ones that you've got passed in. It'll do all the stuff it needs to do to create that client for you. So you can just take that client then and do your stuff. And you don't have to worry about hooking up the values, setting your region, setting your secret ID, any of that stuff. It's all taken care of you for you by this factory.
0: And that's all based off your configs. So that's a perfect example of where you're not passing anything in. It just knows how to new it up pretty much. Um, so let's talk about some of the pros of having your factory classes first like i said a second ago it adheres to the open close principle uh if you ever have seen in your code anywhere like in your main program or in a flow of something that you've got where you're doing a, just a ton of if else's or a switch statement um this might and you're newing up objects based off these if else's then this is probably a good place to have a factory you can insert and this is probably what your uh, interview question was just a second yeah ago. yeah
1: yeah, I, I was going. I was thinking along the lines of if you needed to, uh, you know, instantiate multiple different types, um, but they might all have be based off of a common uh, base class or based off of a common interface. Then uh, that's when you would want to use the factory, and then that way you have only the one place where uh, those concrete types are being newed up, rather than it being scattered throughout your code. You're using the factory to do that for you.
2: Right. And also, if you're creating these classes in multiple spots, then you don't have to have this kind of complex logic around building these classes up and creating them. Like examples, if you're uh, integrating like a PayPal client or something and you want to new up that client in multiple different spots, maybe for checkouts or refunds or or whatever, then you want to be able to say, um, you know, just create new PayPal client. And you don't want to have to worry about digging those settings up or making sure it's configured to go to the right endpoint or any of that stuff. You want one place to take care of that and so that might be a good example of somewhere to use like a simple factory or something where you just want to kind of create that class somewhere away from the code that's actually using it so that the code that's using it doesn't have to worry about how to create this object.
0: Right. And and if you wanted to take it even a step further, so instead of uh, just getting a PayPal client, you'd say, I have multiple payment types. So then you'd have a factory of factories, Right. You have a payment, and then depending on the type that's coming in, it would return you a credit card, a PayPal, or whatever. The whole
1: factory, a factory thing is just too much,
0: though. Oh, it, it like, can get deep, right?
1: Unless you're doing some serious
0: API level
1: development, like really. When, when's the last time you created a factory, a factory, of factories? The, you know, and I think that's the point that Benji Smith was trying to get at.
0: But hold up, I will say this though: a lot of being able to do that kind of thing really comes down to good design, right? At, at, So a lot of people in software don't take the time to sit down and design things up front when they're they're thinking about it, right? Like, this is only something that you could really do in the design phase if you really sat down. So a greenfield
1: application is what you're saying? Yes,
0: that's going to be your best bet, right? And you're actually going to have to spend some of the time in the true SDLC stuff, which a lot of people don't do, right? They just start coding and then breaking things apart. And that's why simple factories are really easy to do. Because this whole thing where you see an if-else or just a, a ton of switches, it's easy to replace that pretty quickly. But if you didn't think a, ahead of time, doing this factory factory thing with abstract factory pattern is going to be nearly impossible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't have its place.
0: Yeah, yeah. But textbook. you have to plan. <laughs> I'm just saying
1: that uh, you know, in the real world, I don't know that I've ever ever actually seen anyone do it just randomly in their code.
0: No, it won't be random. Um, it'll be planned. It'll be super planned. Yeah. So, anyway, that's one of the pros. Um, another one is uh, it can be used with configs, as we mentioned earlier. Again, this usually relies pretty heavily on reflection. Um, wait a minute. What do you mean that's a, a pro? So, um, if you are doing testing or something like that, and you just want to be able to choose a config value, right? So, uh.
1: Oh, okay. I think I see what you're saying. You're using this you're using the config as kinda of like a, a as a a poor man's dependency injection.
0: That's exactly what it is. It's how you're newing up your factory. Sorry. I'm with you now. Um so your factory might create
2: you like a mock PayPal client or
0: something correct. like that rather than a real one that talks to the service. Okay. Correct. And it's basically how the factory itself is newed up and that's going to determine the type of uh, You know, again, if you put BMW in your config, it would new up a BMW auto factory that would then return you the car.
1: Man, if it's that easy to get one, I gotta go do that. I know,
0: right? Um, The next thing is uh, is it can be used with inputs as well. So instead of having the config value, like uh, I mentioned in the uh, in the simple factory you could just pass BMW into a factory method and it would call create automobile and return it for you based off the text. And that's literally going to be a switch statement. So pretty easy stuff. And then the other thing that was mentioned earlier, I don't know if it was outlaw or Joe that said it, but basically your rules for object initialization are centralized. So at this point, all your complex logic that might've been just, you know, plopped out in the middle of one of your methods somewhere this can now be moved to another area that's better for tidying that up because now that logic's in one place and it's not all scattered throughout your code. So that's a huge plus is it just makes it a little bit easier to go in and work with your code the way you need to without having to worry about all this creation business logic. And so here's some of the here's some of the cons. Again, it uses reflection quite a bit. Uh or can use reflection quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I'll agree with the can part. Yeah.
0: Um I would say, generally speaking, it probably does, if it's anything beyond just the simple factory. If you're going past that, then it probably does. Um, Because, generally speaking, when you're doing that, uh, because the factories are based off interfaces, you're not wanting to new that up in your code. So the whole purpose is to get away from using the new keyword, right? So... In order to do that, you're going to use reflection based off either a config value or a value that was passed in through a variable. And then it's going to say, okay, what was this? Okay, it was BMW. All right, now new me up a type behind the scenes of this BMW factory.
2: You almost mean like inflection, not so much reflection. Like it's reacting to some sort of uh, environment or, or argument. Yes. So not like loading up the assembly and scouring through it like system dot reflection.
1: Yes, I I agree with what you just said. Yes, yes. Because when you were talking about with it being reflected, because a lot of the factory patterns I've seen in the implementation haven't been reflection-based, but coincidentally there was that article that we talked about that I published uh, last time on the site that was reflection of control, and in it the, quote, factory was using uh, reflection to scour the the type assembly. That's what this does. But... I don't think that's the norm, though. (laughs) Like, that was uh, just the way I implemented that particular factory. But I wouldn't say that, like, most factories are doing something like that.
0: Uh, Again, anything beyond a simple factory. A simple factory, no, because you're passing in a type and usually getting out a new object. But if you're doing the true where you have factories that are based off interfaces then at that point it is probably using factories that are returning an interface, you mean? No factories that are based off an interface. So you have I Auto Factory and then you have two oh, auto right. factories. Okay. You have a BMW Auto Factory and then you have the Dodge Auto Factory. Based off the value that was brought in, it's going to look through the assemblies for a Dodge Auto Factory and then new that up for you. That's why I say it's based off reflection. Um I don't know if that clarifies anything, makes it muddy or whatever. So that's one of the cons. It can be based off reflection. We'll say it can. I- I'll stick with the can. All right. So, uh, and then what was the last thing? I think that might have been it, right?
2: Yeah, we oh. already mentioned uh, Benji Smith's um, thing on the uh, nobody really buys hammers anymore. This is a
0: great read. Oh, oh, oh! And then the last thing was there can be an extremely, and we talked about this the complexity, the deep hierarchy of classes, right? Like if you do the abstract factory pattern, it can get so. Uh, unwieldy that it could be I mean it could be really frustrating to follow that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah you're creating a class to create your class so you're definitely uh, exploding your code a little bit.
0: Yeah and it can go deep I mean it could be more than one or two levels right? So, I've heard stories. (laughs)
2: Alright so uh, that pretty much takes us through the the factories and factory methods and abstract factories and yada yada Um, next up is builders
1: yada yada over the best part (laughs)
2: uh the best part is coming up uh, when we talk about singletons oh <laughs> okay grudge match oh god uh, versus <laughs> all right but uh right now we're talking about builders and builders um are, are different in that they're more about um having your callers put together your actual object So in the factories, um, factory examples we talked about, it's really the factory that knows how to put these objects together. But in the the builder, it's when you don't really know what you want that object to look like. And so you need the calling code to actually put that together. And I think the best way to explain that is actually with some examples from the .NET framework. Uh, One of my favorites is the string builder. And so, what you usually use string builders for is um, it's a you know convenient, great way to actually build strings in memory, and you can do stuff like loop over arrays or lists and actually um, append to the string builder. And when you're done, kind of building this big long string, you say string builder string, and it generates you an object based on those kind of complex decisions that you made along the way. And maybe even a better one to mention is the actual UR, uh, URL builder. And that's a class where you can pass in, like, a domain name, and you can pass, um, you know, a query string. So things like that would go up in the URL arguments, uh, request variables, get type stuff. And you can kind of compose this method by method. You say add argument, add argument, set domain. Then you say to string, and out comes your URL. It's so, actually the URI builder. Oh, look at that. I need classes. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so, so now we need a factory to create you some glasses.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: sure someone's made a URL builder. So he just made himself right. See what he did there? <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: right. <laughs> but uh what what um I don't know if I can explain this very well. You guys will have to help me here, but to me the big difference between this and factories is that it's the client code that's calling the shots.
0: Well, I think I think even taking it a step further, though, you're actually building it. It does exactly what it says. So you have your initial thing where you instantiate your builder class, right, like your string builder, and then you're going to keep calling append, 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 and so basically what it's doing is it keeps taking your inputs, and then when you're finally done, you call two string, and then it spits you out what you want at well, the end.
1: I almost fear that the string builder example might be a little too simple. It, it, I'm not saying that it's not an elegant sure. uh, implementation of it, but... It might be a little too simple and easily uh, easy to overlook the complexity of really what's happening there. But you know, my uh, my initial takeaway from from what the builder pattern does for you is you use the builder pattern when you need to build complex objects. Um, the factory pattern isn't necessarily that it's building a complex object, although it may be, but it's hiding that complexity exactly. You are not aware of any of that. Whereas with the builder. Uh, pattern you you can be adding you know a little bit more aware of it so in your uri example if you're specifying a port or you're specifying a protocol or you're specifying the host like you're more aware as the caller of the parts that you're saying like these are the parts that i want now go make me a pizza i don't care about how you had to do it like i don't want to know what you had to set the 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 oven temperature to but But i want some pepperoni i want some cheese you know you know, you're going to go through the ingredient list, and then it's going to build
2: the complex object for you. Right, and then, you know, talking about our maze example, an example of like a maze builder here would be a class that had methods like add room, add door, add trap, something like that. And it would actually be up to the client to determine what order and how to call those arguments in order to construct its final object.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good example. And then it does spit you out the thing at the end, right? Like, that's the whole point is you provide the pieces, the ingredients, as it were, and then it spits you out the final product.
2: Yeah. So it's really the client code that's calling the shots.
0: So that one's pretty simple.
2: Or by calling the shots, you mean like adding the ingredients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I like the idea of ingredients. The pizza thing was beautiful. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Italian outlaw. (laughs) Hey, it's a little pizza.
1: (laughs) Isn't pizza actually American though? All right hey. for another
0: show. Yeah, I don't know. All
1: right, so what we got for pros then? What's some pros on the on the
2: builder? It's a great way to build a complex object. Um, you know, there's like I've never worked with a something that had a builder suffix on it and said, "Oh man, I wish this was done some other
0: way." That's a good point. It feels elegant, right? Anytime you use one, factory builder.
2: Now you're onto something.
0: A factory and- builder, factory. Hey, okay. so seeing as how we don't have this in the tip of the week, I mean, for those who don't know what the string builder class is, shouldn't we kind of tell them why it's important? Uh, absolutely, you should. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> take it away, Froggy. Right. Yeah. I mean, for anybody that's actually doing .dot net stuff, you see a lot of times people just keep appending to a string. Right. Strings are immutable. Every time you change it, is re, it's recreating it. You're getting new space and moving it and moving it and moving it. Right. With a string builder, it doesn't do that. You just keep appending to the object, correct? And then at the end of it, it creates you a string. So it's not keep moving memory locations. As far as, as, far as I understand it, that's pretty much the way it works, right? All right. <clears throat> All right. So trick
1: question then. Which one produces the faster operation? Um, a string builder dot append, food dot append, bar dot append, and just keep on doing operations similar to that. Or concatenations with plus sign. Or string dot format and then specify all your variable pieces and then have your parameter list. Mm. Or the last one would just be doing a bunch of string objects and then. Uh, well, I guess we already concatenated. Yeah, that's the plus plus plus. That's yeah, the same yeah, yeah. I know yeah, yeah. which one I, one I like one.
0: better. I, the format I think would be faster.
1: All right, format. I got I got format faster from Alan Joe.
0: Uh, I like format better. Okay, you like it
2: better. Yeah, it's more readable. You see what's going on if it's not <laughs> super long. Yeah, it's just nice. But but which one do you think is faster though? Not like better. Uh, I like the uh, format better.
0: Yeah, because if I remember uh, right, when we go back to our boxing thing, it did not do that. It doesn't box. So those there's eyes. actually
2: there's actually like a lot of a
1: lot of um you, you can do your own googling on this one. But there's both in the the well, I'm mostly thinking of the C sharp world, but you know, in other languages too, maybe. Uh, And in Java, because Java has similar concepts, there's a lot of uh, discussion about, you know, they each have their similar versions of doing these same things, like the string.formats, for example, or the concatenations. And uh, it's the appender, the string builder, that's going to be the faster operation if you were to, you know, scale that out and see which operation actually, uh, you know, was faster. Interesting. Over and over, even though I'm with Joe, that from a readability point of view, the string.format is so much more clear to the developer coming behind you. But depending on the language that you're working in, it might not be as good a performer.
2: I got a question for you here. So, have you ever seen a string builder that wasn't named Builder or SB? Um, Yeah, they're always SB.
1: Yeah, SB (laughs) is it. Yeah. Or the same with URI Builder. Yeah, it's always builder. Is that a builder URI thing? Builder. I don't know. It's like, I, I guess. It's kind of an abstract. Well, concept. well, same with the factories, though, right? It's always factory, something factory. Factory dot create stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. That's true. So sorry. maybe maybe that's what the gang of four was really trying to get at. They just wanted us to all use common variable names.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's nice that someone can see builder and know exactly what that means. But the downside is, it's definitely an abstraction from your domain. Hmm. So. So yeah. any,
1: and we got any cons then? what do we not like about the builder pattern absolutely nothing nothing you don't like about it i
0: love that pattern love it it's your friend it's a little bit more verbose but i mean it kind of has to be right for what you're trying to do so yeah i mean mean, it it goes back to the whole thing you're adding your ingredients one piece at a time so uh it kind of i don't think there's any way around that i got a question for you a nice theory question is
2: it still a builder if it takes away like if I had a Starbucks class or a coffee class, and you could say stuff like add parentheses soy, add parentheses you know vanilla syrup. What if I have a method like remove whip or no whip?
0: Yeah, it's still a builder.
2: Yeah, <clears throat> same thing. It's just it's just
0: taking away. You're you're whittling away. You're basically forming what you want this object to look like when it Wh- comes back.
1: to. Well, I can actually back that up with a real world example since we were talking about the URI builder. If you were to specify the port as negative one, then it won't include the port when it does the two string on it. Ah, oh, nice, perfect. But if you do, if you had a port otherwise specified, or if you didn't specify negative one, then it would include either the port you specified or the de- uh, default.
2: So then I could create a class, call it a builder, and only ever have it take things away. Um,
0: potentially, <laughs> I guess if <laughs> if I really wanted to it to annoy you, and you are going to call it black hole, right? Black hole builder. Yeah. Or destructor. I'm
2: gonna make it a little note and see if I can do something useful with this. Just <laughs> to, make, to annoy everyone. To make a destructor.
0: And here we I, thought we were. We I were th- going I think this is how the uh the, the
1: how Megatron got started. <laughs> <Yeah>. Evil.
0: <laughs> so I I think we thought we were going to blow through builders, but it's actually kind of a fun one to talk about. So.
1: Well, because it's one that like you don't really think about that much, but it's out there in the wild and there you know you are, are
0: already using it. And it's highly useful. But uh
1: yeah so we'll move on. So uh we did get some in other news. Uh we did get some new reviews in lately and uh we wanted to say that we really appreciate that. That really does uh help others to find us as well. So um you know, we want to give thanks back to that and uh you know, ask that if uh you know, if you if you can, you know, give us a review, give us a rating, we really appreciate that. Like I said, it goes a long way to helping us out and helping
0: others to find us. Yeah, and if you don't want to type one, you know, just go click the five stars. I know that's what you want to do. Or, or copy
1: someone else's <laughs> and uh, <laughs> make sure make sure it's a good one though.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, agreed. But no, seriously, uh, the reviews are greatly appreciated. So please, if you happen to remember this after your drive, listening to this, you know, uh, go into iTunes or, or Stitcher or wherever, and, and you know, drop us a little note.
2: Yeah, drop us a five-star review and then write us and let you know what you really think. Yeah, yeah, we're good with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was our mid-episode call to action. And uh we've still got a few more patterns to follow up with here. So uh, Those next, crazy creational patterns. That's right. Back to those creational patterns. And the next one I want to talk about is not really um, something you talk about that much, at least in C Sharp, and that is the prototype pattern. And that's a pattern where you create new objects by cloning existing objects at runtime. And the two key words there are cloning and runtime. And I looked for some examples in .NET Framework and uh, I couldn't really find any good ones. There's a clone method on system.encoding, there's one on solid color but, uh but I had a really hard time kind of justifying what those did, I'm sure it's really useful, I just don't know. An example you're probably more familiar with is actually JavaScript. So its whole inheritance model is built off of prototyping. And so um, you basically clone objects, add to them, um, take away, and clone, clone, clone. And um, as I mentioned, the important parts here are clone and runtime. So an example that I actually just coded up here, and and we'll have a link to in the show notes, is um, like a kind of a 2D shoot or something like Gradius or 1942. Or if, if you don't play the games like this, it's uh you control some sort of little ship. It flies around the screen and shoots, um, lots and lots of, um, aliens or bad guys. And as you kind of move around on this board, you pick up power ups and it changes your bullets into fire or bombs or makes them shoot faster or, you know, two bullets at once or whatever. And so I thought, is this how Mario got to be big? <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one, <laughs> no, okay, <laughs> now you got me thinking, <laughs> but that's not how I would have done it, but uh so for um so, for this type of game, how I kind of thought I might do it one way would be to have my ship have like a prototypical copy of a bullet, right, and this bullet could have something like a speed property and maybe a power property that tells you how much damage it does to the bad guy. And as I navigate my ship along, I can pick up power-ups and and power up my bullets. But as I power up my bullet, I don't want to actually affect any of the ones that are out there now. So if I pick up like a laser power-up and I've got a bullet that I previously fired halfway across the screen, I don't want it to change, right? So every time I shoot this bullet, I make a clone of my prototypical bullet and then make it visible and shoot it off, right? So that's kind of cool, but that's not the real power. Right, the real power here is that it's at runtime. So when I'm cloning these objects, I don't actually know what I'm cloning. As long as they can clone themselves, that's all I really care about. So these can be bullets that I don't even know about at compile time. So I could load like a third-party DLL if I'm, you know, like enabled. Uh, if I have a game that's enabling mods, and I can create and shoot bullets that third parties create, which is really cool. And it'll just kind of work and plug in as long as those objects know how to create themselves via a clone method.
0: And that was the uh, real key to what you were talking about, the runtime, was being able to pull in that plugin at runtime and just clone those, which is really cool.
2: Yep, I can shoot anything that knows how to clone itself. And uh, Microsoft actually, uh, the .NET Framework actually has a a method built in called clone that will do just that. And um, you can implement the iCloneable Interface create a clone method that returns an object unfortunately, and there you go, you've you've uh, created the prototype pattern. The problem of course with object is that you have to cast it and you're losing that compile time type safety.
0: Yep. So you're boxing everything. Yep,
2: I like to think uh, maybe if Microsoft uh, was doing that now, they would do something with generics they could kind of enforce that, but I don't really fully thought that all the way out, so maybe it's not a good idea.
0: So anybody listening to this that had no idea what he was talking about when he said 1942 or uh, Gradius, on the iPad, you can download R-Type. Awesome game. And that is very similar, and you should all go pay a dollar or two or whatever it is and play that until you just can't play anymore.
2: Yeah, and if you're not super old and maybe you grew up on Unreal Tournament or whatever, it's the same (laughs) kind of concept. You know, These games have mods, you can run around with a certain kind of gun, pick up a different kind of gun. It doesn't modify the, the bullets that you have in flight. And uh, you can also pick up guns that are made by third parties.
0: Yep, very cool. All right, so uh, so what are the uh, applicable reasons for doing this?
2: Well, I like to think that like, if you don't know what you're going to be creating uh, at runtime. So um, a good example here is the, if another game, uh, the game of Spore. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but it's got like this kind of creature creator where you can walk around and eat stuff that lets you evolve things like more arms or snouts or wings or, or whatever. And um, as your little creature kind of grows and procreates and creates little babies and, you know, gradually takes over the world, then, um, you know, you're, you're basically cloning these things and copying all their properties over to a next generation. And what's nice about this is you didn't have a class that, you know, specifically modeled this particular creature. It was all kind of built up, a runtime, possibly using a builder pattern, and then it's cloned in order to kind of move on to the next generation and modify from there. Yeah, so that about wraps it up for prototypes. Uh, pretty cool. We'll have a link to that uh, GitHub project. So I guess we don't want to talk about singletons then.
0: Uh, nobody uses them. Oh. I think they were deprecated. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: all right, so so just strictly speaking, right, The from a pure you know, dictionary kind of point of view, right? It's a single instance of a class, right? The, the class itself restricts the instantiation of it to so that there's only one of it. Okay.
2: You know, I, I think if you didn't like singletons so much, I I wouldn't dislike them or I wouldn't <laughs> pretend to dislike them, which is actually what I'm doing here.
1: Well, it's not that I like them so much. It's just that it, wh- what bothers me, though, is that when people get into their little, uh, you know, anti pattern crap, that I'm like, whatever so uh you know all right so so what does the the singleton structure normally look like right so one of the usual suspects in your um singleton um class is that the constructor will be private and it'll be parameterless right that that's you know, norm you know the the bare bones minimum normal part that you'll see to it there's uh several different ways within um c sharp and java that you can create a uh a singleton i'm not necessarily going to go over all of them but um you know there's just briefly there's um versions that you can do there that, that where you need to worry about thread safety some that you don't need to worry about thread safety there's static constructor singletons there's uh double check locking uh singletons so there there's the point is is that it, you know even within MSDN there's several of them um John Skeet has written up an article where uh he he talks about um I think it was like a half dozen of of the different implementations for it and what he thought were the pros and cons for it so the point is there's a bunch of them right and um you know there's some that that everyone
2: likes and you know Everyone has their opinions on it, right? Um, but you said parameterless constructor, and if I had to kind of take a guess at why that's important, I think it's because these classes know how to create themselves, right? That's part of their draw. Right, right. Because we don't even really know who's going to cause that creation, at least in the case of, like, you know, statics. We don't know who the first person to call that guy is.
1: Um, yeah, that's true. And, in, in, uh, you know, so... With a static constructor, you know you're not going to take any kind of access modifiers or parameters on it, and uh, it's it's going to be called automatically to initialize the class uh, before the first instance is created. So this is going to be through a, a static constructor, the way that's going to happen, and uh, you know that that constructor you can't call it directly, and you have no control over when that uh, constructor is executed at runtime. Now, <laughs> I, I'm uh, not so much a fan of those just because uh you know, you you have no way to to do anything else with it a second time if you needed to um, uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit but um yeah it, it is a popular way to do static constructor singletons are a popular way and they and it's a valid way for you know some of your smaller use cases or well let me rephrase that when you have um, uh I like to think of it as like a simple class. Like when it's, when there's not a lot of fun, logic to it, then you know, then it's maybe more safer to do it that way. Um. So, you know, if, if you think that there's a chance that you're, you know, you could have any kind of a constructor exception thrown, then static constructor is not going to be the one for you.
2: Right, because you get stuck in that uh, that nasty loop.
1: Right. Um, it does make the question though, like you know, if you're, when you're doing your, when you're implementing a singleton, um, if you should leave it as sealed or if you should seal it or not. Right. Because
2: what's the, what's the, you can't inherit from it. Uh, is that true? Uh, so I know for a static class, you can't, right. So and you can't seal a static class as far as I know, cause you can't inherit from it anyway. Um, but if you had a singleton, right. And you sealed it, well, I mean, the, the point is you only want the one. The one, yeah.
0: So one. why
1: would you allow for inheritance?
2: You
0: wanted multiple singletons mm. of the same type.
2: Yeah, and, <laughs> and so I, mean, I, mean, I guess that's kind of a downside to singletons is that you're making a decision right there that there's only ever going to be one. Right.
0: Well, it's not
1: it's not required, right, as part of the singleton implementation, but um, but it certainly makes it more clear to everyone who's looking at your code that,
0: you know... There shouldn't it, be more than one of these. Right. I don't know. I mean, what if, uh, what if you had a singleton class that you could subclass, right? <clears throat> you could subclass it, and let's say that it was two different types of uh, connections. I, I don't know. Would that work? If you, if you basically had, you didn't make it sealed, so you could inherit from it, but then your other two classes had the, had the constructors that would would new them up, and one basically pointed to I don't know one directory and another pointed to another directory.
1: But the point uh, is uh, though that your base class would have all of the implementation behind the singleton.
0: Yeah. It so would.
2: how are you gonna how are you gonna do that, right? Okay,
0: here's so, an example.
2: So maybe it's not so much that I want to have two singletons around, but rather I want to use mine instead of yours. So I wanna extend yours, override something, and then
0: just only use mine. <laughs> Yeah, you could do that. You could only override certain methods in it, right? As long as they're not yeah, static.
1: I, I mean, honestly, I've never tried to inherit from, you know, to create a subclass of a, uh, another singleton, but that seems
0: problematic. But you could uh, do it. I mean, that that would be the reason you wouldn't seal it, right? You could do it. Well, what if you've got, like, um, we'll say convinced. a singleton for, like,
2: caching, right? And this caching could hold a bunch of memory, and it might you might want to have um, basically an abstract class for that that contains methods like flushing or stuff that's going to be common to all the children mm, so the children are all we'll, you know, we'll come back
1: to that I, I mean like the the idea of inheriting from it seems to be weird but well let's let's move on though. so because there's a lot to get into here right so there's the static constructor that we talked about and you know one of the downsides to it is that um you know if there's the possibility that anything bad can happen in it you're not going to be able to reinitialize that. Static constructors, you can't do anything about it. Um, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's another way that um, John Skeed had, had uh, written about, which I actually found interesting I, when I stumbled across this article that he had, um, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes. I'd actually never seen um, this method done before, but I thought it was uh, an interesting. One where uh you know, in the you have an outer class but um you know, that, that that the world can use, but then inside of it you have an inner private class that actually represents all the singleton um construction logic. And uh you know, you, you can you can have it to be a lazy initialization but yet um um you you know use you know because it's used by an instance field, for example, but uh you know you you can ah, what am I trying to
2: say here um you can delegate to that inner class um so you you've got a class here that's got an instance method right, so when you call you know my class dot instance, it gets you that one single instance of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see. That's kind of cool. So you've got the class there, and then you've got this instance thing, which is basically responsible for creating that class uh, the first time if it doesn't already exist.
1: Yeah. It it was you know, like I said, it, it was an interesting way. I I hadn't uh, I hadn't used that one in my own you know in my own code before, but um, you know when I saw his take on it, I thought well that, that was a pretty neat pattern uh, with the the private inner class uh, to represent the you know yeah. And that that
2: static constructor singleton. Yeah, and there's two things I really like about that, I just kind of off the cuff. And, and one is the lazy initialization, right? Kind of like the static. So it only creates itself after and if it's called. But my favorite part there is that it's, that seems like an easy way to reset. And that's the problem that uh, I see with static constructors. If, if you've got any sort of properties there and you just want to kind of reset that back to its initial state, then you have to remember to go back and <coughs> reinitialize all those settings to whatever their defaults were which usually involves some sort of, you know, hacky reset method or something. But in this case, you can just kind of say, um, you know, set my object to null. And when you ever call that nu- that instance again, if it sees that null there, it can go ahead and create it. And it's totally from scratch, whatever the initial value should be, without you having to worry about what those were.
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is trying to combine the, you know,
1: the both worlds there with the lazy initialization and the um, static constructor. But then there's the more... Um, uh, you know, let's call it the more modern way where, um, you know, depending on you know, your version of.net, you might be able to use this, which is the lazy of T type. So you know, you're going to be on a .NET four or higher. Um, and then in, in this singleton implementation, you can, uh, you know, pass in the delegate constructor to it and, uh, you know, still have your, your static, um, uh, Instance, Right. But,
0: uh, you know, based off the type.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, the, the, it, uh, it's another interesting approach on it, but, uh, I will say that, and maybe this is just from old school, uh, kind of, you know, stuck in my ways, you know, m- my more tried and true method that I, that I'm more of a fan of is the double checked locking uh, version of that where in my, um, you know, whatever I'm going to use to represent my instance, then uh, I will have, um, you know, a check to see if the instance is null and then grab a lock on some object and then check it again to see if the instance is still null. And then if it is still null, then I'll new up an instance of it. And then, you know, after I break out of the ifs, I'll return that instance. So, um, you know, I, I call it a tried and true method, but that really depends on your language of choice, though.
2: And it's self-healing, too, right? Because the static example, it crashes once it's done. But in this case, if it crashes creating the first time, it, the second time it comes around, it's still going to see that object is null and it's going to try again.
1: Well, so that's that's why I really like that pattern or that version of the singleton is that because it does give you some control over, um, you know, your your... You're doing lazy initialization uh, by not newing up anything at the time that the application is loaded, but you're not doing it until you actually try to call it. So you get that advantage of it, but you have the advantage and the flexibility of saying, you know, if I want it to be, to reinitialize itself, I can just null it out and let it do its thing, right? Uh, Provided you provide a setter. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or, well, you know, maybe some... some other, uh, way of, it doesn't have to be a setter, but some other way of, of having it, uh, um, null itself out if needed. Right. But I say that that comes at, you know, depending on your language though, because, um, it was, uh, you know, in Java specifically, the double check locking, um, pattern was not recommended, um, prior to, uh, uh, J2SE 5.0, um, because there was a bug um, in, in that runtime where there could be an out of order write that would allow the instance reference to be returned before the constructor was ever executed. And so, um, you know, depending on uh, you know, how parallel your system was and how fast it was, like you would, you'd more often than not, you would see that cause a problem where you were expecting that the instance had been created because you were using the double check locking, but because of the bug it, it hadn't yet. And so then you would get back on a uh, null reference or null, null pointer exception. Um, so, so, you know, that's it in a, in a nutshell, uh, you know, related to some of the types now, you know, like I said, there's, you can easily go and look and and there's it, at minimum a half dozen different ways on how to create a, a, how to implement a singleton. Right. Um,
2: yeah, we talked about double check locking. We talked about the lazy T we talked about inner classes, um, static constructors. And, um, we even talked a little bit about kind of sealing and inheritance, Well, I'm not sure if we really said what singletons were kind of what the point was. Um,
1: okay. You're right. So, cause I kind of, I did go over like the base definition of it though, when I said it was the
2: single instance of a class, but yeah, but why would I want that?
1: Um, Okay, so there's a couple places, like, okay, some examples that you might only want one instance of, of the object, right? So, like, logging uh, is one example that might be given. So, like, um, log for net, for example, right? You, you just have the one logger um, or, or log reference uh, that's handling all of that I.O., and you're just trusting it to, to do it for you, right? Okay.
2: Um, that could be one. Uh, example. So an exa- So to follow along with that example, I could have used a factory there and said create me log writer. I get my log writer and, and write along with all the other log writers. Or I could have a singleton called log and just say log write. And then wherever my code calls that I don't have to worry about creating a new client. I could just kind of go for it.
1: But the difference there though is in your um, scenario where you were calling your, your factory, right? Then you could have out of order writes happening to your log. Gotcha. And since you want these to be time-based so that you can go back through and later look at that log if you needed to to replay anything or understand what happened, you want to be able to look at that log in the order of events that happen. And right? Right. Um so so that might be an instance where you want to you want to make sure that there's only one thing that's writing to that. Right?
2: right? Yeah, I want a shared stream. I don't want a whole bunch of writers writing to this file.
0: Well, right. on top of that also <clears throat> with your singleton Wow, <coughs> go ahead, Froggy. You've only got the uh, you've only got that one instance on the heap, right? Whereas if you're doing something like the factory, anytime you instantiate that, you're creating multiple pointers to multiple spaces on the heap. Yep. So, well, you're that's saving the point. memory as well, right? It's,
1: but yeah, but also and also not only the memory problems, but then uh, you you know if you had multiple uh, objects all trying to write to the same file, then you could get into I/O concurrency, uh, concurrency issues. issues too. Right. So you know, lo- logging is an uh, an off an example that you often see in regards to
2: well, why would I want a singleton?
0: Well, another right? place is like database connections. I, I, I've right? got
1: some other ones, but um, we'll come back to that.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it's um, useful whenever uh, you need one object to coordinate actions across a system. So, thank you, Wiki. So, uh, an, another thing, though, at least in the C
1: Sharp world, when you're implementing your uh, um, your your singletons you you will often use your volatile keyword here to indicate that a field might be modified by multiple threads that are executing at the same time so uh you know this uh will give you a, a good opportunity to use that one if you haven't already
2: um (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna have to tweet Vlad and ask him about volatile again because as soon as as he explains it to me, and it's been at least twice Mm -hmm. now, it just flies right out of my head along with regular expressions.
1: (laughs) I love regex. So, uh, yeah. So, so I've I've given the brief overview of of the singletons here and and the different uh,
2: versions of it. Um. Yeah, so so there's definitely it makes them sound, you know, pretty rosy there, right? It sounds nice, but if you guys are near a computer right now, I, I've got a, a little ask of you. If you could just go, you know, open up Chrome tab, whatever, go to Google and just go ahead and type singletons R. Oh well, my god right? I wasn't I wasn't trying to bring you into that. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Did not I uh Did did I do something wrong here? Because if I say singletons are then the first evil, uh, the first result there, (laughs) slip a tongue there is evil. Second is bad. Third is my favorite. It's pathological liars.
1: Okay. Well, that wasn't exactly where I was was thinking that you were going to go with this. Okay. Okay. I was. uh, I had had something else in mind, but you know, me versus the rest of the world.
2: Oh
0: yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Specifically, uh, you know. Again, we'll post the link in the show notes uh to John skeet's article but um you know if you ha- if you're not already familiar with him, he's a very well respected author uh I like his books and but uh, he and I do have a difference of opinion uh when it comes to the preferred singleton implementation because he's a fan of the static constructor version of the implementation, whereas like I said, I really prefer the uh double checked locking version and you if you read his article he makes a case for it um why he doesn't like the double check locking and some of that was based on you know uh language portability so you know depending on eh. the eh, depending on the version of java that you might be using then you know maybe that's not going to be usable for you but um you know like i said it, it, it's I, I I don't like the static constructor version unless that is a simple class, right? That that singleton's class. If there's any chance that that singleton could throw any kind of exception, uh, then you know you're hosed in it. And I like the ability that I can reinitialize it uh, if I if I wanted to. And I know that. Um, Some will say, like, "Whoa, well, if there's the possibility that could throw an exception, then you probably just need to refactor that to begin with." There's already other problems, and I'm not going to argue that point. That that's a fantastic point and a valid point. I just like the flexibility of of the double-checked locking.
2: Yeah, it's self-healing, right? It's nice. Yeah, but there's something about seeing that side class there, and you know exactly what that means. There could be only one. I've never actually seen a class named something singleton. Uh, unlike the other patterns we've mentioned. So it's kind of nice to have that visual indicator. Um, that's not a strong argument for it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as far as your naming is concerned, though, it's not as nice as the naming, though. Because it's still kind of hidden, though. It's like, you know, if you if your eyes happen to scan over that um, static... Keyword in front of the constructor, then you might not recognize that it's a singleton at all. Whereas at least in in my mechanism, where you're you're using an instance uh, property, um, you know, to to represent your singleton, it
2: might be a little bit more clear to you if you were to come by behind me and look at the code. Right? Yeah. Um, if I see dot instance, I know what that means, and you know, I've never actually seen the lazy t implementation in the wild before.
1: Yeah, and I think that's because you know depending on uh the .NET framework that you're working with at the time then, you know, it may not just be available to you or, you know, and this goes back to the portability, you know, um uh, uh point of view though, is that you know the lazy of T is definitely going to be specific to uh, .NET and specific versions of .NET whereas, you know, like a double check locking mechanism or a static constructor are going to be a little bit more general purpose. Right? Yep. So then there's
2: the anti-pattern crap, the naysayers. Oh gosh.
0: <clears throat> so so I,
2: I'll tell you the thing I don't like about singletons is that they're they're generally a facade for global variables and and global methods. Like we mentioned with the logging, uh, which is okay, but I generally think of globals as ways of kind of cheating proper encapsulation.
1: But no, because you're not you're not using them. Necessarily to like a global variable to share some uh, you know, value that you're going to use over and over. You're using them as something to do something for you,
0: and not, you only want the one. Not necessarily. It can be used exactly like you said.
1: But, but, <clears throat> uh, while, well, okay, so yeah, it's always bad to do bad programming. Right. Okay. But my, where the intent of my point a moment ago, though, was that. The purpose behind it isn't to, you know, if you're using it to store a variable that some user input, you know, and then you want to carry it throughout the rest of your application. And, you know, that's that's a whole other problem that you got going on there. Um,
2: You know, it's generally because you only want the one of the something and. But do you always just want one of the, something like the in the log example, you know, that's an example of like a, a concrete class that knows how to create itself. So my calling code, you know, it's nice that it can just kind of say log dot write. But what's gross is when my unit tests start um, writing logs on my CI server, you know, something like that.
1: Okay, so this is where um, <laughs> some of the anti-pattern... Uh, FUD. Yeah, well, I was trying to think of a good word for the You know, the, the case comes in about like, you know... W- that that crowd doesn't like the singleton pattern because they say, well, it mandates its own creation and lifecycle and persistence and, you know, it, it makes it difficult to test. How can you
2: mock it? Things like that. But, um... <sighs> and you're literally, like, kind of cementing this concrete class into your, impl- into your calling code. I or mean... The it, other patterns seem to get away from concrete implementations. Right. They're
0: not tightly coupled.
1: I'm not okay. saying that it's... Uh, okay, so... Um, it can be, right? But like, okay, so like a static constructor singleton, right? I could see, I could, I could definitely see a strong argument for that being difficult to test because if you wanted to say, let's say that you're testing your singleton class, right? And it's a static constructor singleton, then sure. Now all your test cases there reference it, there will only be the one. So if you needed to have the ability to reinitialize it, then in your test case, you can't, right? But, for example, going back to the double-checked locking mechanism that I mentioned, where you know it's backed by an instance field and it can self-heal, as you put it, then you could have the ability to do some sort of a reset on it. You know, depending on like you know whatever method you named, um, you know inside that singleton that would set your variable behind the scenes back to null, so that it would you know self-heal the next time you called. Then I could see where you know that argument is kind of lessened. As far as you know, the inability to test the singleton.
2: Yeah, and bad coding is still bad coding. You can mess anything up, but just you know, I, I usually see singletons in, in places like that that are kind of scary. And so, you know, if you've got a unit test that that does some stuff and it modifies the state of that singleton, then you need to make sure in all of those tests that you reset that state back to you know where you expected to be when you run. Which is already kind of a weird situation, anyway. But you know, just something to kind of watch out for. It's definitely a, the biggest problem I have with it is testing,
1: right? And so, and, and like, and that's the the whole um, you know the general theme around why I'm not crazy about the static instructor <clears throat> singletons is that you have that uh, inability to reset them, whether it be actually in your you know real production code or in your use case. Regardless, either way, you're up the creek. Um, but Another great example where you may want um, um, only one, right? And uh, this is going back to the beginning of the show when we talked about your factory pattern, right? You might have a case where you want your factory pattern to return back a, quote, null version of an object. But it's not truly null keyword, But what you're wanting to get at is return back an empty version of it. So um, there's another pattern that's called the null object pattern, right, where uh, you return back, like, a safe version of an object. So, for example, the null object pattern could be simply uh, if your method is supposed to return back a list, uh, but the user didn't provide you something, rather than returning back the null keyword, you would return an empty list, and that empty list represents the you know is used for the as part of the null object pattern right so going back to the factory pattern if you um needed to return back some object that represented an a null version of the object or a null uh, an empty version of the object, you want to make sure that there's only one version of that null object right so um uh you know in allen's Factory examples. He was using cars, right? So, if you had a null car, right, um, you only want one null car, and the reason why is for equality checks later on, right? So, if you had if if that null car was able to be implemented or I'm um, sorry, instantiated multiple times, and you later wanted to say like, okay, well, did the car I just got back equal equal the null car? Well, that wouldn't work unless it was a singleton.
2: Yep. But there, there are other ways to kind of create singletons without actually specifying it in that class. Like the example I always come back to is dependency injection. I can actually configure as a class to only live for that application. And I can even control when it gets initialized. So then that lets me handle the persistence and keep it alive and make sure there's only ever one. But I can also control the life cycle somewhere else, like in testing or in some other way by the way uh we definitely have to uh thank uh Raj so tweet here for getting Alan out because he is dying, <laughs> he is, we are actually watching him, he's slumping in his chair as we speak, but he didn't want to let you down Raj
1: yeah no i mean i, I understand your point so um yeah i mean sure, there there are a thousand ways to solve the problem right um but my only point like when people go on with the anti pattern uh case though is uh there is a place for it right i mean that you know it's why it became a thing right if there was never a place for it and and no one ever needed this pattern then it would have never been used like you know maybe it would have been written about and people would have just blown it off but you know clearly there was a a a use case for it and you know it, it, it's there.
2: Yeah, it's very practical. You know, a lot of times the the, the solution you see to these whole singleton anti pattern thing is used in dependency injection, and everyone writes about that on the internet, on their blogs, and on Twitter, and then they go to their day jobs and write singletons. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah,
1: maybe that helps,
2: maybe it doesn't, but uh yeah. Yeah. I, so just to kind of recap that, so singletons, their big draw is that they know how to create themselves. And so, what that means is you don't have to configure these guys and create them. You, you don't have to new them up. You don't have to have a factory. Your guys, your client, your calling code can just go ahead and just call methods on this thing, and you don't have to worry about whether it's been created, what the state is, any of that stuff. All that life cycle stuff is handled by the class itself. That's a good summary. I'll go with that. Cool. So we actually, so we just talked about all the creational patterns. That wraps this up. So wanted to kind of go over them real quick again. So we talked about factory methods. We talked about all the different kinds of factories. We talked about builder, string builder, URL builder.
1: Oh, you forgot the uh, hammer, the factory, the tool That's factory, right. builder, factory, factory. Yeah, don't hammer forget factory.
2: that. We don't buy hammers anymore, though. All right, so we talked about factory factories. We talked about builders. We talked about prototypes with the whole kind of weird bullet thing. And then we talked about the uh, infamous singleton pattern. And uh that's it for our main topic.
1: And yeah, so uh we got some resources that uh we'll be including in in our show notes there. Yeah.
2: Um first and foremost is that Gang of Four book, um which is just called Design Patterns even though no one ever calls it that.
1: Well, it does have like a subtitle, right? The Elements of Reusable Object Oriented
2: Yeah, but the main title. It just flies right out of your head. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> did you hear something it's like a I, frog i don't know what that was that's gonna haunt me i might not be able to sleep tonight i don't know if the mics can pick that that depth up
1: wow that was creepy <laughs> all right so um you know some other links that we'll be including in there there's uh, in a on the MSDN site, there was a great uh, article about exploring the factory design pattern. It um, was a really good read. As I mentioned, um, John Skeet's um, book, he has the C-sharp in-depth. It's currently on the third edition. It's a Manning publication. Uh, we'll include that as well. There's a um, just a, a, an in-general article on the MSDN site that's just uh, design patterns in the .NET framework in general. It's also another great read. Um, we'll include that one as well. I'm um, afraid for this next yeah, one. Yeah,
0: and then <laughs> there's the uh, design patterns library, and it's a ton of content up on Pluralsight. Unbelievable. It's like uh, who is that hours, guy? Right? That's not the same guy that we were
2: talking
1: to earlier tonight, right? Yeah, yeah. you know what?
2: I didn't even mention yeah. that. Uh, I actually spoke over a lot of Alan's talking points earlier because <laughs> of his voice, and so anything that I said that didn't make sense or was just plain wrong.
0: Fair enough. Yeah, I was really just covering for Alan. So uh, okay, yeah. Um. So yeah, there's. Uh, I think he was right. There's like 15 hours of material on those.
2: Yeah, that uh, that's definitely a long one, and it's um, a long list of big names too. You know, people uh, like. Donna Belcham and Glenn Block and, and you know names we've heard before, of course Scott Allen. So you know these are these are big guys. These are the smarties.
1: Yeah, there, there's there's uh, a you know eleven authors for that uh, that that one
2: um, plural site uh, episode. Yeah, that's just like that one series, right?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they keep adding to it.
2: Yep.
1: Okay, so with that, let's get into the tips of the week. Uh, so uh, Lee wrote, wrote a blog entry on his site, ManchesterDeveloper.com, and you can find him on Twitter at Lee Inglestone. And uh, you know, I, I know I've used this feature before within Visual Studio. I don't know if you guys have, but what's really nice about this feature is that if you you don't necessarily want to create a, a breakpoint, but you want to create some kind of a bookmark to go back and find it, right? So there is a bookmark feature within um, Visual Studio. And uh you can use uh you know the the little menu items up at the top or the keyboard uh, shortcuts, so like for example, control plus B and then T to toggle the bookmark on and off and then there are um, uh, additional either icons or keystrokes that you can use to toggle back and forth between uh, the different bookmarks, or you can use the um, there's a bookmarks window if you turn on. Uh, you, know, you you go through your, your view options and turn on the other windows. There's a bookmark ones and you can see all your bookmark references all at one time. But it's just a great way of uh, giving yourself a little placeholder um, for a piece of code that you might want to inspect or be interested in but you don't necessarily want to create breakpoints. And I know in the past I've definitely used uh, breakpoints for more than their intended purpose.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, I do that with undo. <laughs> Yeah, so that's feel bad. But so, just to make sure, um, these bookmarks do what I think they do, right? I bookmark like a line in a the file, then I go along my merry way, and I can say, "Oh nope, go back to where I was a few minutes ago." Right? Um, that's y- absolutely right. Yeah,
1: you can you can go you can cycle between the bookmarks. Okay. So so think of this as you know just like you would in um, like on like on a Kindle book, right? Where if you wanted to scroll between them, but instead of pages, you're you're looking at uh, lines of code. Gotcha. Um, so it, it, it's it's a nice little feature in there. Yep. And like I said, we'll, we'll include a link to uh, Lee's blog article as well.
0: All right. So my tip of the week, if I can get this out. <clears throat> I don't think you can. Yeah. I'm. You got a bad body on it. I'm fading. Uh, so there's uh, debugging object initializers. <clears throat> wow. So, if you've ever had a problem...
1: <laughs> this is just comical now.
0: If you've ever had a problem... I want to
1: make him talk about more stuff.
0: <clears throat> I, I, I won't make it much longer. If you've ever been trying to debug uh, properties of an object as you create it, a lot of times you'll notice as you like try to F11 into it, it'll just step over the entire object initialization, which can be insanely frustrating. There is actually an option to where you can go into the... Uh, Visual Studio settings, and you can turn on uh, object initializer. Oh yes, thank you. If you go into debugging general, then there is a step over properties and operations, and in operators, I'm sorry. And if you actually click that, it doesn't make sense. But the step over properties and operators, when you click that, it actually allows you to step through it. It sounds like it, it; would skip over it, but that's not right. Check the box, and it'll allow you to do it line by line by F eleven.
2: Yep, and if you head over to uh, the show notes for this episode at you know what www. though dot net slash episode eleven or slash episode ten, we actually gave this one last week as well. But we've got I thought a really that nice, one
1: sounded familiar. Awesome.
2: Like, the good news is we've got a really nice shortcut. Uh, I mean, a <laughs> screenshot, and you're not going to forget this
0: one. Beautiful.
1: Well, I feel like maybe we should make him talk about something else. <laughs> I, I, get
0: it. I, a, I deep Yeah, deep. pony up, Alan. <laughs> I, I, uh, wow. <laughs> mm. F3. Control really- There you go. Hold on a second. So there, there's a quick one. If you find a keyword in your file and you want to search for it, click on the keyword, hit Control F3, and instead of having to actually do Control F and then type it in the word, it will actually go find that word where it follows next on the page. So Control-F3, my quick tip of the week, and I'm done. (laughs) Yep. What's
2: funny about this is uh, as much as we talk about best practices, uh, this is clearly a copy-paste error. (laughs) Busted. My tip of the week was uh, I've been reading Clean Code, awesome book. And uh, one of the tips I just got out of there was um, it actually uh, recommended using static methods instead of constructor overloads. And so what that means is if I, say, have a color class, right, and uh, one of the ways I can do that is new color parentheses and pass, say, hex values, right? And so I can create the color red from a string. Um, then, you know, okay, that's cool. That's normal. But what's even better is to have a static method on that class called, say, from hex that can take in that same string and return the same, um, same new object. But now it's much more descriptive. So rather than me having this kind of constructor that you've got a F12 to and see if it means what you think it means, now we've got a nice you know named method that does, You know, it, it just tells you flat out what it does. So I thought that was a cool little uh, life hacker tip.
0: Oh, so in your static method, then you're saying return new color um with that X value.
2: Yeah, so it's basically the same thing as having a constructor overload, just more descriptive. Ah, oh, cool.
0: So you don't have to rely on these stupid,
2: you know, summary tags in your code. You can just have the method named you know, be the actual description of what it's doing.
0: Nice.
2: So with that,
1: we will be putting the show notes and links, uh, or <laughs> putting the show notes in the show notes. We'll be putting the links in the show notes and uh, things that we've talked about. And, uh, as we've asked before, please, you know, subscribe to us on iTunes as Stitcher, and, uh, be sure to give us, uh, a rating or review using your uh, favorite podcasting app.
2: Yep, and uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcasting app.
1: Wait, did I just say that?
2: <laughs> I think we're all, all getting right. a little tired. So, yeah. Alan might have got us all sick. <laughs> I don't know. All right, how about,
1: how about I'll wrap this up. I'll say that you know, be sure to visit us at codingbox.net where you can find our show notes,
2: examples, discussions, and more. And contact us with a question or topic. Leave your name, preferred method of shout-out, whether it's your website or Twitter, whatever you want us to promote. And we'll mention you on the podcast, And uh, especially if you give us a review. And um, uh, make sure you send me any sort of feedback, questions, or anything like that, rants, uh, funny cat pictures, to Comments at CodingBlocks.net. And make sure you follow us on Twitter, at CodingBlocks. Bye. <laughs> Beautiful.